friends. Welcome back to another episode of Gratitude and Leadership. We're super excited to introduce to you Tina Wells, who's our guest on the podcast today. Tina is super incredible. I mean, wow. She just has an amazing background and she's so humble and really has this calmness about her. I think you'll hear it that anyone can do whatever they set their mind to. And Tina set her mind to do some incredible things. She's an entrepreneur, a best-selling author and a speaker and a brand builder. She believes that work-life harmony is the key to elevating your life. And I can't wait for you to hear this episode because the things she touches on and the challenges she's faced and the way she's overcome them while working with brands like like Dell, Apple, Procter & Gamble, and the Oprah Winfrey Network. Like amazing reach, super humble, very organized, such an articulate person. I love that she's so focused on giving back and really connecting with tweens and teens and just women, future women. Um, she's helping build them up. So enjoy. I can't wait to hear what you think about it. Please leave us a review or share with a friend because we want to know how this touched you. Thanks so much, friends, and enjoy. Welcome to another episode of Gratitude and Leadership. We're so happy to have you here today with our co-host, Kami McGrew, and our guest, the one and only Tina Wells. Tina, how are you? I'm great. I'm so happy to be here with you both. This is yes. so fun. It's a great way to spend my, oh, I shouldn't say what day of the week it is, but it's a great day to spend an afternoon. Let's it's a great day. It's a Monday. And it's it is fun that like, I looked forward to waking up today and getting to go do this. And I thought, how cool is it that this is my life, that I get to talk to amazing people, I told Kami, I was like, this is a blue checkmark person. So we really need to be. Yes, sister. <laughs> so it's, so it's such a wonderful treat to have you. So Tina, I know that you are a book writing machine. I know this because every time I go to Target, I have to buy more of your books because I say have to, I get to buy more of your books because my kids are addicted to one of your series. And I know that you're releasing another book. So first tell us about McKinsey and all of her adventures and kind of how that came to be. Like, how cool is that? It's the coolest. It's the dream. And that I know we're going to dig into what didn't work and how we got to what worked. So it's great to start with what is working and we can talk about how I got here. But my path to Target was really understanding a couple years ago that a lot of things weren't working. And what I really came to understand and define is work-life harmony wasn't there. And I was a marketer who had an incredibly celebrated career. And that was looked great, on, I think looked great on the outside, but my passion was really writing. And years ago, I got the opportunity to pen a series, Mackenzie Blue, done five books in that series and really felt like I wish I'd had more time to pursue that because it was something I loved talking to younger readers and creating these worlds. And it was just the most creative, most fun gig ever. And I was really fortunate in 2019 to sell that series to Audible. And that provided opportunity for me to go on sabbatical, take a moment to think about what I wanted to do next. And, and what really emerged was this amazing partnership with Target. I was the first middle grade author to partner with them and to create something exclusively for them. And that became the Z Files, which is the spinoff of Mackenzie Blue and the Z file and Mackenzie Blue. My character was a 12 year old girl who was living in Southern California and she wanted to grow up and be a, a pop star and a writer. And her best friend had just moved to Paris. So it was really about what is it like to go into middle school? You don't have your best friend. Life is changing. And in the Z files, the whole family uproots and moves to London for her father's job. And Z ends up at a boarding school in the Cotswolds. And so I love the idea of taking a California girl in all of her color and stripes and everything and putting 
bring her into a probably a, a much more conservative environment for her of the like UK boarding school scene. And so the sixth book is dropping any day now at Target. We've had a little logistics issue. So for those of you who are writing me, it's coming. And then like you said, I have a new series dropping at Target in November, actually. And those books are all there ready to go. It's called The Stitch Click. And it's about five girls who meet in a fashion class. And they're very, very, very different. And they become friends in spite of or probably because of some pretty big differences. And so I'm really excited for that. It's my first new series in a year plus. And so can't wait to see what readers think about that. So uh, like, number one, it's so fun. Not anybody else is going to get to see this, but I get to see you totally lit up, just literally grinning from (laughs) ear to ear, smiling, talking about this. You can feel that this is, it's work you enjoy, that you're passionate about, and you can see the creativity in your eyes as you're describing it. You're seeing this and it gets to come to life in a book. So that's kind of one thing that I just want to put a pin in that it's so exciting to talk to people who are moved and still jazzed about their work because oftentimes I can imagine I have not written a book that you get a little tired through the process. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you have girls that are the age of my readers. And so I can only say how fun it like, or what I think about how fun it is to parent in that life stage. I know it can be a little scary, but I just don't think there's anyone cooler on the planet than a tween girl, you know, a girl who's like coming into her own, defining her own personality. And that excitement the first time certain things pop up, like I see it with my niece, like the first time she has to go and buy face wash and all these things like things that are like a slog for us now as adults, there's still that innocence and joy that you see. And I I just love that with tweens. And I love that humor that they have, how they can make anything funny, you know, and they're not as self-conscious yet as they are when they kind of move into YA. And so it's just a life stage I've always really liked. I was going to ask what made you, what made your character be a middle school girl? Was that something that, you know, a time in your life that you wanted to talk about? Like, where did that come from? It's interesting. I think that my passion for tween really came from my work in marketing. You know, I was one of the first people to really focus on who tweens were and this whole new category of consumer at that time. And that was really pushed by some of my larger clients, like the PNGs of the world, who said like tween is emerging, right? Because prior to tween, we really just had kids and teenagers, right? So there was, this was back 2006, 2007, the emergence of this completely new consumer as we talked about them. And I just being at that place of doing a lot of research early on, I thought, wow, this is a huge demographic shift. I think we spent so much time at that time talking about millennials because that was such a massive generational shift that we kind of missed this new emerging tween consumer. And that's when you started to see limited two and all these things that were targeting girls. And now I would say the Brandy Melvilles of the world, Florence, but like I could go on and on with the brands that we know, but it was so new then. And the idea that we would take this four to five years and separate that out from either being a child or being a teenager was fascinating. And I, you know, ended up being, you know, I was a research agency, started doing research like I would and really thought, I really like who this person is and I want to talk to her. And, and so that's kind of where the journey started. It was really out of the work I was doing. Well, and Tina, when did you start your first business? I was 16. So you had just come out of your tween phase. (laughs) I was 16 and ran that company for almost 24 years. So that was crazy. That what was I doing when I was 16? (laughs) Not building a business, that's for sure. (laughs) I didn't think I was building one either. So we're in the same, but I was a very accidental entrepreneur, you know? I don't know about that, Tina. Like I think maybe to some extent, but tell me how so people this this is cool because people can see a snapshot of where you are now. You're accidental entrepreneur when you're 16. 
16, but what paved the way? I know your parents are super important in, in helping shape who you are. It, they had to be because who starts a business that for the next 24 years, you work on it when you're 16, if you don't have some pretty influential parents, what do you think are like the ingredients that really helped you go from being a 16 year old entrepreneur to selling a book series to audible? Like that jump feels even from where I'm sitting and I I know you, that feels like such a huge jump to an uh, air quote normal person. I know you hear this a lot. So <laughs> you're, probably, you're like, I don't know. And, and then I guess the second question to that, if you can, is how do you deal with imposter syndrome? Does it still chase you? Yeah, it's interesting when you become an entrepreneur in your in your teens, right? And remember, I often say, think back to where we were in 1996. There was no Mark Zuckerberg, right? So I was not doing something where you could look at and say, oh, she's an entrepreneur like so-and-so. Obviously, I'm not Mark, but you, we, we didn't have a framework at that time for what young entrepreneurs even looked like. And I remember, goodness, probably, I was probably 25, 26 when I got introduced to the Young Entrepreneur's Council and Scott Gerber called me up and said, I'm starting this club for young entrepreneurs. I want you to be, and he like pitched me on it. And I remember thinking, there's a place for weird people like me, right? Because we just hadn't really defined what entrepreneurship looked like for young people. It was very defined. Like we we were in a time of the quintessential CEO, right? So think back to like Jack Welch. Like we can go back to tons of people that we would define as people who were running corporations who we admired and looked up to. But the idea that like I would take my skills and not try to get into Harvard Law or do something like that. And I would start, this was not something that was celebrated. I was lucky that it was in my family and that, you know, I'm the oldest of six kids and my parents, to their credit, they were like, you have to go to college, you have to get an education. But whatever we all wanted to do, there wasn't a pressure to do a certain thing. And I remember people often said to my parents, oh, Tina's really smart. Why isn't she a doctor or a lawyer? You know, oh, I hope that works out for her. Like, it was a lot of like, it's so unfortunate she's wasting her intelligence on this thing. And, and my parents just were like, it's fine. Like, she's, it's fine. You know, the deal was you have to go to college. But with that, you know, everything else that happened, they were there and supportive. And, you know, my mom's family was incredibly entrepreneurial. All eight of my uncles at some point had their own business. You know, my grandfather is a builder, an architect. And so I grew up very much an entrepreneurial family. My mom had all of those, you know, her background was in HR. So anything I needed to know, like how to write a professional letter, like she faxed my my column for me that got me my first job at the New Girl Times, like very influential and, and helpful in, in that part and still are today. You know, I still call my parents. I tell my mom, like, I don't care how many Harvard MBAs I'm paying for advice. I still call my mom and get the best business advice at what to do. Like she's got a, she's very common sense kind of person and incredibly book smart. But, you know, I, not only were my parents supportive. My five younger siblings were as well. They've all spent time working in the business at some point. They would still jump in today if I needed something. And so I think I, I come from a very supportive background. So I didn't really have to think about imposter syndrome so much. And I and it's true. Ignorance is bliss. I was young. I didn't know. Now I would never. I could never do what I did all those years ago because we know too much now. But it was great. I mean, there was no Instagram. There was no social media. The worst that could happen is a bad print article that went away the next month. When you think about 
here I am and here here's who I am and who's who I present as. I mean, you did a Tory Birch spread. I think did you also do a Veronica Beard as well? Yeah. Like <laughs> so cool. And I mean, getting to wake up and do that, is there ever a point where you think someone's gonna find me out? Not anymore. I think I did during the agency time and I it took a while and I think writing my new book, right, for adults, the elevation approach, which is coming out next spring. I think during that process it helped me also process a lot of what I was doing. And what I mean by that is I think oftentimes we know in a certain part of us, our being, that something isn't quite right and we're already overcorrecting. And then in hindsight, we process and we're like, oh, that time when I did not understand why I was crying every day, I was actually depressed. And here's why. And here's how that manifested. And here's what happened. And I think I, I had that going through the book and realizing like there's one, I have these principles of instant elevation. And one of them is know your numbers. And I, in that section, I talk about serving on boards and being financially responsible for tens of organizations, but not really looking at my bottom line. And what I realized was my side hustles were making me more money than my agency. And so that was an aha moment of saying this business does not make sense. Right. So I had to separate who I was. Right. So I was not saying, Tina, you are a failure. I was saying, I am running a business that is going to fail if I don't, I shut that down or do a massive pivot. And so I ended up doing both. I ended up saying I'm done with the agency side and really took the assets from the agency that were performing and built a new business around that, which is what I do now. But you know, the imposter syndrome, I think, came from that idea that something wasn't working. And then I had to settle myself to get a full picture of what it was. But I think often we just think, let's just keep going, like we'll work through it. And what I realized was this was going to be such a massive, massive the word I want to use. Problem is like beyond problem, like disaster that I had to take that minute to stop or else I would have like completely like what the financial damage I could have done if I just kept blazing ahead it would have just I, I don't know how I would have come back from that I, I know you can come back from anything but at that time it was a real wake-up call that like this is going to cause major damage if I don't fix this well one of your ways that I've noticed from observation is you do take some you two take significant time to find creativity and mm -hmm. you, it seems like you find creativity from living abroad, from traveling. Well, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, that's definitely, again, another principle. And I, I frame it around this idea of get curious. I think you're sitting there and saying, how do I elevate my life? How do I do something different? There are a couple things. Like I start with the process of you have to declutter your space right? Like I think clutter takes up so much time, attention, energy, we don't even know we're giving to it. And you have to make space for the ability to think or do something bigger. And then right after that, the next thing I talk about is you have to get curious. And then after that, you have to know your numbers, right? Like we have to, what are you interested in? And then once I start to think about, I might want this business or I might like that business, then I go right into the numbers part of, is it feasible, right? I think too often we spend too much time with our head in the clouds thinking, I'm going to open this dream bakery that really in fine print is a nightmare, right? And so I immediately have to get myself to a place of saying, is this really feasible, and then if it is, then I move to the next phase of like socializing the idea and getting who do I know who's done it before? What advice do they have? But to me, those first few steps, the get curious piece is really important. And I think oftentimes we get really good at one thing and, and we do that almost on like without even really having to think about it. 
And we're not opening ourselves up to curiosity because that opens up the idea that, well, what if I don't like the thing I'm doing anymore? And that's all I'm trained to do. Like sometimes we don't want to mess with a good thing. Yeah. When you, I was looking at statistics the other day of the number of businesses being opened worldwide, but specific to the US. And the majority of them are minority women owned businesses. Mm -hmm. And yet we see that numerically and statistically, those businesses aren't doing very well by at least the benchmark of like a million dollars business or those types of things. And then in, in just in terms of um, having profit, what do you think is the reason for that? Well, first, I think there are, uh, last time I, I was doing research when I started Elevation. And so there are probably a little bit more now. The time there were 11 million small businesses that were female founded, right? Female owned in the US, of which about 47% were owned by women of color, which is huge, right? Because when we think about, we hear statistics a lot about venture funding, not really going to black women or women of color. In reality, we are starting one in every two business. In general, though, for female-owned small businesses, over 90% do not see revenue above $250,000. So while you're right, this is an issue for women of color, it is an issue for women in general to have businesses get to a million dollars, right? That That is a big elephant in the room, like that's a huge issue in general. And so then it starts, I start to think about, well, what do businesses need? And at every stage of growth, you need something different. So if you're growing towards your first million, the most important thing your business can do is develop systems and processes. And so that alignment, right, that defining to scale, if you think about what you've done to scale your business, I bet the thing that you did that was most impactful was what's our system and what and what are the processes we have in place? And then how do we scale from those? Well, and that's the most broken thing as we scale to we're seeking revenue next year of 10 million for the first time. And everything is broken in terms of our systems because we've never, we don't have systems that are designed to handle that kind of volume. So yeah, the systems aspect of it gets complicated. I mean, in my experience, that first 250 to 500 is so much of a, a marketing where you are just everywhere. And for women, particularly women of color, obviously I'm speaking from a scientific and an observation standpoint, being a white lady seems the thing I can relate with the most is for millennia, we've been taught to not be seen. And Mm -hmm. then all of a sudden, here we are trying to open this business and it's time for us to be seen. And people make fun of the way we look, they make fun of the way we talk. And this isn't 1996 now. It is, you have to be seen in, in mass on social media. What do you have to say for women who might be starting out doing that where, yeah, it hasn't perhaps been the easiest thing, but you have to do it anyway. What do you say to them? Yeah. So it's funny. I, that's, I'm working on some new courses and one of the ones I am most dedicated to creating is this authentic branding course for the female small business owner. Because to your point, how we talk about ourselves, like the language we use, all of those things, the colors we wear, you know, I remember when I saw Whitney, the the founder of Bumble in all yellow for like two years, I'm like, wow, what a statement, right? Like the things that like, just how quickly how you brand yourself as a female founder has changed so drastically and so much. And I think it is quite overwhelming. I am a person who started a marketing business. And so it was so, uh, it was just a part of what I was doing every day to have the ability to talk, speak all those things. It's just like, it's an extension of what I build for other people. But now in this season that I'm entering where I am not behind a brand, I'm now in front of a brand. I'm being very, very thoughtful. And I have a team that's very thoughtful about what 
that looks like. And I can't wait to share more of that. But I think that goes back to the first principle around decluttering, right? Around getting curious. Those two things together, finding time to say, who am I? What's most important that people get from me? What is the feeling and connection I want people to have with me and my brand? And then you back into how, what are the tools to get there, right? I realize the importance of reels, I, but I also don't love being in front of the camera all the time. And people are probably very shocked to hear that. I'm a writer. I love to write. I love that communication tool. And so that would primarily be how I communicate. But as you said, that the world does not offer us only that option anymore. And so I try to find the way to be most authentically me, with, which also then allows me to deliver to an audience in a way that I know will reach them. Because that is a key. Like you, if you're doing the thing that feels most authentic, but you're not reaching anyone, you're not going to have revenue. And so I think you have to marry the two and figure out how can I be most authentically myself on social media? And yet, how do I also make sure I'm on top of what's going on? And thankfully today, you can do that for a lot less money than you could do it when you and I started companies, right? Like, so the number one thing, it's a very corny old school thing, but join the association for whatever industry you're in. If you are a florist, find the Association of American Florists, pay your dues and get every bit of research and data they can offer on how the industry is changing, you know, and sign up for services like social curator and all of these like 50 bucks a month, but you get into a community and you can learn how to develop tools. That to me has been the most rewarding is the peer learning and being with a group of women or people in general who are saying, I'm trying to figure this out too. I think you just have to put yourself in that space. Um, and that's been some of the best business investments. I didn't know what to do on Instagram. I took a course. It was 300 bucks. The best 300 bucks I'd spent that year was to learn how to develop who I needed to be on Instagram. And so make those investments in yourself. I think as female small business owners, the first thing we think about is who we're bringing onto our team and we have to hire. Like first think about if you are a team of one for a minute and you're just investing in yourself and tools to help, that's okay because you have to develop yourself to be kind of the chief representative of the brand. I want to pivot a little bit outside of business ownership. One of the many incredible things that you do is you love to give back and it's a global giving back. When I first met you, you were going, I think it was to Honduras or maybe it was El Salvador and you were having bodyguards and you had this like ransom life insurance. Tell me about that. Oh, that's always fun, right? Um, I So I went to Honduras for the first time when I was 19. I was a Bonner scholar. And what that meant is instead of doing work study, I had won a scholarship where I would do community service and that would then be what funded the scholarship. And so I, you have to do a certain amount of hours over the summer and I elected to go to Honduras and I went right after Hurricane Mitch and I'm, you know, a 19 year old American and my first real experience being outside of the U.S. and it was really humbling. Uh, I'm Still today, it, it's the experience that kind of level sets for me what a bad day is. A bad day is not what I used to think about as a bad day when I met people who lost everything, you know, because of a hurricane and what happened there. And since I had ended up um, serving on the board of a nonprofit that I, you know, I'd stayed there actually when I was in Honduras as a college student and as an adult joined their board. And then I got involved about 10 years ago with the UN's Global Entrepreneurs Council. I was a member and I think I saw you right before I went to Uganda for two weeks. And that was a really incredible experience. That was definitely a more UN armed guards kind of situation. And I think we often think of the UN as like the security council. And we don't think about all of the other things this organization does to feed, you know, one in seven people in the world every day, what they do for children and for refugees. And I, I spent two days of my life in refugee facilities. And I, I'm sure we share this, like, I, it's unbelievable the way I hear people talk about people who seek a 
asylum and, and if you meet an asylum seeker, meet someone who's lost their whole family in a day and they're a 17 year old boy and they're Somalian and they're just hoping, you know, trying to get to our country and, and all the hope that America has for these people, what it, what it means to them to be able to come here. I'm really grateful for those experiences to help me level set what is a good day? What is a bad day? What does it mean to be a good citizen to humanity, not just a great American? You know, I think about those things often. And I recently joined the board of Girl Up. And Girl Up is also a program through the UN Foundation. And one, I love the idea of girls all over the world creating clubs and these leadership organizations, and then helping girls, other girls in the world. I think it's incredible the work that we get to do through Girl Up. And I'm, I'm, I'm passionately trying to organize a trip where we can go meet Girl Up clubs internationally. I'm, I'm so impressed by these young women and what they're doing. And so uh, I've always considered myself a very global citizen. I, as you've already said, I love to be probably outside of the country, meeting new people, going to new places. Um, but I love to be home too. But there, I just we 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 are living in a global world. You know, we are all so interconnected, whether we want to see it that way or not. And I just I love that, and I, I it's a real passion for me to really think about what work I can do in contributing in that way as well. Sometimes people get a little tied up thinking that if I create wealth, and yet I see that there's this huge disparity. That disparity exists whether we get tied up in it or not. Sometimes people get a little bit tied up in if I create wealth for myself, and then I'm in these spaces where I see so much poverty and so much of just an absence of wealth. Is it right for me to have so much when others have so little? What makes me worth this? Why do I get so lucky and others don't? And I know you come from a deeply faith-filled background. How do you reconcile all of those things? You know, it's interesting. So the answer I'm going to give is one I want to, that is not my own, but it was one of the best I've ever heard from Melinda French. And she was being interviewed by Oprah who asked her this question about the trips they were taking. And Oprah was talking about this one time when someone tried to literally give Melinda her their baby. And she said, how do you process that? How do you process that? And she said, my responsibility with my wealth is to do the biggest thing I can do that is going to have the most impact for all of the women in this community. And that's what I'm focused on. And I thought that was such a great answer. And so deep because I'm like, yeah, there are some of us who when everyone, everyone has a way that we can all contribute. And there's something every single one of us can do. But something my dad, who was a retired pastor now, but he used to say to me when I was growing up and would always say, dad, well, why do I have to do this thing. And nobody else has to live by these rules or do this thing. And he always would say to whom much is given, much is required. And I think that is what I think of as a guiding light is for everything I've been given, every opportunity, you know, every financial increase, it's what am I doing to get back? And what does that look like? Um, It looks really different in this season, you know, beyond the writing, it's now as I'm building businesses and retail and understand the complexities and the nuances of being a Black business owner who is now in manufacturing and retail what learnings can I give and how do I help others in this space? How do I help others do really good business? Um, I know the numbers now so deeply and I know there's a way I can make them so much better for people who look like me. So I think in my next phase, I, I've already said I'm going to launch what I have to launch. I want it to partners to be and then I'm going to sunset myself in a way if I can from being you know front of the one who's like photographed in the brand to like, how do I really help women and, and small businesses 
businesses and, and black owned businesses really succeed in retail. And that's going to be a focus. And so I think there are many ways you can do it. I think it's just being really conscious of the fact that I am very blessed. And, and it, I think for a person like me, there's an interesting dichotomy of I am so incredibly blessed and the world is so incredibly unfair to people who look like me, right? And that is something that I have to deal with every day. And I think I allow myself space to process both of those things, right? And and to realize both are true. And I think one of the biggest issues I see in our country right now is this idea that you have to think this or that, right? That either this is true or that is true. And, and the, in reality, both things are true, right? Like both things can be true. And I think we have a hard time processing the idea that what if both are true? And what if there's uh, like, you know, how do we then proceed when there's truth? When we're often asked to pick a side and sometimes there just isn't a side to pick. It's like, I am a, I live an incredibly blessed, lead an incredibly blessed life. And I am also working harder than I would have to if I were not a white male. Those are both true. And I can move forward and gracefully accept both of those things. Did, so I have a quick oh. question. <laughs> I mean, I'm enjoying you guys' conversation. I <laughs> truly am. But I'm going to ask a question real quick because I was reading um, some stuff about you earlier, Tina. And and there was a quote that you had said, and it, it's, I don't believe in balance. I don't think that it's something we can ever achieve. And yet women are always asked to find balance. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? And then I also want to know, like, what are your tools to feel safe in the space that you're in? Do you meditate? You know, do you go to church? Like what, it, what does that look like for you? Cause you are very busy. Thank you. It's funny that I really expound on that in the book. And I am bringing in this idea of work-life harmony because I don't believe balance exists. I think, and I talk a lot about this in the book of why I've gotten to the, this conclusion, because I think balance again, makes you make a choice. It says like you either, you have your work and you have your life. And in reality, and I think we all realize this during the pandemic, actually, they, they're all more like this. They're not here. They're very intertwined. And, and we also like that. And I think we haven't yet been able to identify or put into words that feeling. But after people got through the shock of I'm my child's teacher now, there was something really beautiful that happened when you could be on Zoom and see your child and have a five minute break to give a hug and go back to work. Or when you can pick up your child and have that conference call, like we can't define that, but we have been taught that that can't happen, right? That you need to have your your work personality and your life personality. And we ended up having to be two different people. And I just think we don't have the energy to do it anymore. And we just know in our beings that there's a better way to exist. And so for me, what work-life harmony means is everything has to work together, right? I, I hadn't been able to get to a soccer game, to my niece's soccer games, but I had the Girl Up, Girl Hero Awards in New York City a couple days ago, uh, or a couple weeks ago. And I called my sister and said, can I, I want to take her as my date. I said, it's a girl event. It's great for her. We'll have a day in New York City. And so I did some work work and I did some personal stuff and it worked, you know, and I think we all are starting to see that's how we want to live. And it goes a little bit deeper on the harmony side to say, but that's also why I'm on the board of an organization like Girl Up, right? I had to look at my board commitments a couple of years ago and say, do they actually line up with the harmony I want in my life? I want to be on a board where I can bring my niece to see the work that I'm doing. And so there were some other things that while they were prestigious, didn't match up to what I was building in my life. Some boards make no sense for me. I'm a writer. Like I like it makes more sense to be on the board if I'm going to do nonprofit of a library than maybe a science museum that
that just doesn't have the harmony I need in my life anymore, you know? And so I think that again is getting quiet, being really clear on who you are and what is important and what you like, and then making space. And then to to your um, question about my practice, another principle, there are 12 principles of instant elevation and, and there are four phases in the elevation approach, preparation, inspiration, recreation, and transformation. And I just decided the other day, I'm adding a fifth phase, which is like my year for next year, which I'm calling celebration. If you can bring that all together. But in the part for me is in the transformation section, there's this idea of creating a spiritual practice. And, you know, I'm a Christian. I am the daughter of a pastor, the granddaughter of a pastor. That spiritual practice is what works for me. I also talk in the book about like a very um, difficult experience I had in church as a, as a kid and, and understanding and really speaking to people who feel like I was hurt in church and I needed to move on from that. I speak very honestly about I was too. I was really, really lucky to have my dad and have him be who he was. Um, but I, I think a spiritual practice is really important because I, I just believe that you have to have a set of values um, that come from something bigger than you. And I think a set of beliefs and, and that's been very important to me. Um, and then you've got to make space for reflection. And so I think prayer and meditation are both important. And I also think they're different things, right? I think in one, you are talking to God. And I think in another experience, you're allowing him to talk to you. And I think both are important. Uh, I think that kind of ongoing conversation is important. But what I realized for myself, I'm a person who can have my mind moving 24-7 is getting those first 10 minutes of the day to be just a quiet time is so important to kind of the set, like how I set up my day. And you know when you don't have that time and you know when you do. There's a difference in how you're leading. There's a difference in how you are problem solving. And so I say to anyone, so I got a note back from my editor, like, and what do we say? What are you going to say to people who don't have a spiritual practice? And I said, I don't know that I am the one to say that because everything I'm talking about is built around the idea that you will have one, whatever it is for you. But it's important in my mind. We're talking a lot about building a life in certain ways and that's vision, but it's also faith, right? You you have to have your faith that this might work out or this I'm going in the right direction. And so I think it's important. I think I've written something that is very accepting of different experiences. And, and I also understand where we are right now in our country and I, I how faith has kind of been placed in the middle of, of something that it never should have ever been placed in the middle of. And I'll leave that at that. But I, I think it's really important when you think about, you know, the mental health crisis we're having, it's going on. I pay very close attention to what's happening with children. It's important that children who learn how to meditate, who learn my niece when she started at three years old saying, I need to take a pose to quiet myself, you know, and watching how she reacts to the world. That was so important to her at three years old to learn. I can make space to take it down a notch, right? And so I feel it's so important. And I feel that unfortunately, faith in general has been politicized. And you've got people who are just don't want any parts of it or taking it to mean something it never was meant to mean. And I, I hope people really kind of reclaim that for themselves. It's a way to say, you know, you have a right to feel that divine connection, however you want to recognize it. One of our other podcast guests is a female pastor, Judith Christ, and she talks about soul care. And that's, it, it sounds very similar. She's also coming from a Christian's perspective, but for her, it, it really was just about how am I going to take care of my soul today rather than self-care? She calls it soul care. And I thought, I think that those are kind of speaking into the same vein, which is really fun. I love that idea. That's yeah. A- it's good stuff. <laughs> Tina, where can we find out more about Ella? 
elevate? Um, I so the best place is to go to tinawells.com and you will find all the information available about the elevation approach. You can also just Google the elevation approach and it'll pop up now uh, wherever books are sold. But my website, I love for you to subscribe to the it's newsletter. Beautiful. Yes. Oh, thank you. But then you can get all the free resources and I'll tell you everything that's to come. But there are a lot of resources on tinawells.com too. Okay, wonderful. We will check it out. And I am super excited for the next book to drop because I know that the girls are going to be excited about that. And if anyone is, you know, if you got tweens, it's so fun because Tina is teaching our kids how to be hip, which is really fun because the kids <laughs> to me saying things like, mom, what is, I, I guess, I guess it's, I love you so much, whatever the I-L-Y-S-M. What does this mean? And I had to look at it and understand my context. I was like, oh yeah, that is what that means. And I don't type that nearly often enough. So Sean and I have incorporated that into our texting. <laughs> oh my, you so I, you know, I, <laughs> I was going to say, I send notes to my niece and say, am I saying this right? And she's like, you are so embarrassing. I'm like, well, I need this. <laughs> tell me if it's right. Tell me if it's right, because I need oh, this to be, great. I need this to be believable. Yeah. Tina, thank you so much for coming onto the show. We appreciate you and can't wait to see more come from everything that you're doing and giving to the world. Thank you. Thanks, Tina. Well, what did you think? I told you it was going to be a great conversation, right? If Tina's story spoke to you, if the nuggets of wisdom she shared with us today, if you feel like a friend would enjoy this, can you shoot them a text with a link to this podcast and let them know, hey, I think that you might get something out of this. I think you might enjoy it. And the greatest thing that you can do so that more people are able to hear these great conversations on gratitude and leadership is to leave a review and download the future episodes, subscribe, all of that good stuff on whatever platform you're listening on. And we'll see you again back here next week for more gratitude, more leadership to help you using Tina's words, elevate your life. Thanks, friends. See ya.